This morning, Professor Pramesh Lalu joins me on the line. He was supposed to be joining me on the line this morning, but he's taken the liberty of actually coming into the studio and being with us live. Uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us in the studio this morning, Professor. And welcome to Cape Talk. Thank you, Zane. Call me Pramesh. Pramesh, um, your, your book is out, and it's a book entitled Undoing Undoing Apartheid. And I think to a large extent, we we haven't made that, that cross and we haven't created that bridge yet of undoing apartheid because it's it's only we've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've had a various other things happening in. But we haven't undone this. We haven't actually taken it apart. And until we take it apart and understand how it affects our lives and how it affects us now, what what happened in the past, how it actually sort of reflects into our lives at the moment, we, we'll never be able to understand where we should be heading to as a country. Yes, and I think that's absolutely correct. I think we have misapprehended something in the formation of apartheid. So we've, you know, we've had great courage in this country to try and transcend what was a devastating effect on the human condition. But what we failed to do is to undo something very, very central to its functioning, to its operation as a machine. Apartheid was a machine. And this book is an attempt to point out where we might apprehend this problem of apartheid, something that we, we thought was, was inconsequential, mundane, everyday, and that is this notion of petty apartheid. Now, petty apartheid, in Verwood's formulation of that, of that idea, had a long gestation period in the history of South Africa. It, it comes out of the moment, as I argue in the book, of the end of slavery and the revolution in the sciences, in thermodynamics in the 1800s. And in that lacuna, an excess of race was dispatched into the world and became a, move, a, a force that was moved from one technical system to another. And Firwut was educated in mm. that particular way of organizing the sensory. In fact, I argue that Firwut was part of what was called a sensory order, to order the senses, the human senses, in a way that would allow for control and of, of, the, uh, of turning a society into its parts. So if you hear the word apartheid, we often think about segregation, but actually what we ought to be hearing in that word is part. Apartheid was the rule of parts. And this book is an attempt to say, show us how that came to be and how we might undo it in the interest of crafting a new concept of freedom for ourselves. Chat to us about the book. Take us through the book and what you, the examples you looked at, and and we. I know that Athlone is a is a major part of of of, of the background of all of this, and uh, you know the Trojan horse incident, for instance. And and as you said, it it was it was a system which needed a strategy, and that strategy needed to create effects and 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 actions uh, in order for them to keep it to where they are. So take us through the book. So I should say this is not a book of conventional history. It mm. is a book in the humanities and it engages theater, it engages jazz, it has a whole section on Abdullah Ibrahim's Mannenberg and you know the film that was done on Abdullah Ibrahim called The Brother with the Perfect Timing. But it also has an encounter with theory in the kind of big sense of that word. So it's a book of higher education if you like and I'm not apologetic about that. But the opening sequence of the book relates to Richard Reeves' Emergency Continued. Now, Reeve, in my family, 
loomed large as a teacher. And, and on the Cape Flats, he was a phenomenal teacher. He was an incredible, he taught Latin, he taught English, and, and he was larger than life in many respects. Um, but Reeve's Emergency continued, which is a sequel to a previous novel called Emergency about the 1960 emergency in which, that saw the Sabuquas and the Mandelas and others go to prison. The sequel, Emergency Continued, was about my generation. And Reeve was at Hewitt Training College, Teachers yeah. Training College, and I was at Belgravia High, was the SRC chairperson at Belgravia High with Peter Williams and Rashida Labans, and then part of the Athlone Student Action Committee. And Reeve was very disturbed about the generational conflict that had taken hold in a place like Athlone and more generally across the Western Cape. And so Emergency Continued is a story about his, his son, the this guy, Brad uh, Dreyer, who's a lecturer, a disillusioned, failed writer, a lecturer at a, at a teacher's training college like Reeve and his son, Bradley. And it's about Reeve saying to our generation that education will continue to be important. And so in the book, it opens with this discussion of Richard Reeve's emergency continued. And I say that we, in that moment of debate, in the haste of wanting freedom, had opted sometimes too quickly for the urgencies and exigencies of, of, of liberation. But we had forgotten that we had, there was something about education that would teach us about you know, something more important and more crucial about the, 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 the edifice of apartheid that we were brushing up against. And so just very quickly what the, what the opening sequence does, and this will set the scene for you, is that it asks us, as Dreyer does, to think a little bit about what the students of 1985 had stumbled upon. And Reeves' argument really is that the students of 1985 would have stumbled on something that they would squander if they did not study. And my book is an attempt to go back to that point and to study what we had squandered, what we had stumbled upon mm. but squandered because we did not pay attention yes. to what was unfolding in this configuration of apartheid. At, at that time, uh, taking me back to 1985, I had just started my second year of teaching in, in Mannenberg. And it, it, it was a very disillusioned period for us as, as educators or teachers, as we were called at the time, because on the one hand, we had, uh, you know, brushing up against the system, which was the so-called colored affairs. And, and there was expected of principals to write down names of people who are activists and, you know, people who were not uh, coming to school and teachers who were not pitching up to, to come to school. I myself was interrogated at that time by a lieutenant or general Brazil at the time because he felt that there were three Johnsons at the school and one of us was, was, was the inciter. But then also we were, we were looking at our children arriving at nine o'clock in the morning, trying to give them homework, trying to give them stuff to go and study because it, this was a, an extended period in 1985. It was almost six months that we that there was no schooling going on. Uh, and I remember myself also at the University of Western Cape uh, arriving for the end of the year exams and uh, Professor Richard van der Ross standing there and the whole, the, the stairs were all full uh, going into the hall and everybody said, we're not writing, Professor. We are only going to be writing. And we didn't know, like, like you indicate, you know, go back to that time. And we didn't know of what we were, were getting up against. You see, let me put it this way. This is not an attempt to pass judgment on that decision mm. of students in that moment because they had stumbled on something that, was, that, that could not e be easily translated 
into a form of education. And so Reeve is very clear that we don't, he, he's not asking for a return to some kind of normalized education because that would be impossible in an abnormal society that we were living in. Riven as it was with violence, generational conflict, um, huge feuds across you know, a spectrum of, of sex- sectors of the society that had been orchestrated in the name of petty apartheid. And so we were living through a period where there was an, a growth in the technological resources of the society and a constraint on what you could do. So you were trapped. And that was apartheid's logic. It produced a condition of civil war because it needed to provoke civil war all the time. The point I want to make, however, is that Reeve is asking for a new model of education. And in this book, I argue that that model of education is what I call an aesthetic education, an education of the senses, a training of the senses to counter the effects and devastating consequences of apartheid in the everyday. Now, you know, you will remember, it takes up Abdullah Ibrahim's Mannenberg, mm. and there's a brilliant film by Chris Austin called Brother with the Perfect Timing, and he tells this wonderful story, this anecdotal story. Battle Kutsir is narrating a scene on a Saturday in Mannenberg, and he says, you know, there are two brothers ambling down the road, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this on radio, but they're smoking a joint. Mm. And, you know, behind them, there's a girl that's coming, that's skipping, And behind her, there's a car that's accelerating. Now, the idea here is that there are three temporalities, three different times, Mm. slowing down of the two brothers, the girl skipping, and the accelerating car. And he passes the joint to the brother, pulls the girl, you know, scoops the girl up, pulls out of the way of the oncoming car, and the car passes, and and Abdullah says, perfect timing, master musicians. They're competing temporalities, but they arrive without collision. Now, my wonder is whether in that anecdote we might discover a texture of freedom and feeling mm. and, and whether that is a basis for thinking about an educational process that trains the senses, that opens our, our world beyond the kind of technological resources that we have. In other words, to avoid becoming subsumed in the technological moment and allowing ourselves to become you know, more than human, if you like. And to think about the future as a double future. So Abdullah tells me a story once that um, we just a few moments that I had an interaction that you have in Athlone, people who would often not talk about going to go see a double feature at, say, the Kismet Cinema. Mm. They would go, they'd talk about going to see a double future. Now, that slip of the tongue is really interesting. There's something in it. There's a potential and there's a future that is devastating. That could be a return of the same. Or there's a future that we can build that takes us to a further shore. Mm. You you deal with a number of, of things in the book, for instance, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim, the Kismet Theatre, and and a number of very iconic things um, that, that stand out. And these things are familiar to me because it's an era that's familiar to myself and probably to a number of people out there. And if you'd love to join this conversation with us this morning, where we are talking about documenting history, past and present, to Professor Pramesh Lalu, the author uh, of a book entitled Undoing Apartheid, and and the importance of this particular book, because it it has to put, uh, for for me, it'll put me in a particular frame of mind and take me back. And, you know, a, a number of people will say, ah, but you need to forget about it. We need to move on. And we cannot actually move on unless we have gone down to the analytics of studying 
what has been done wrong and what has been done wrong to, to, to a large part of the population of this country and then analyzing that, understanding it and, and knowing why we are exactly where we are. Uh, but you talk a lot of, uh, about a, a number of, of, of things in, in the book about, as I said, the Kismet Bioscope, which was an outlet for people. That's where we could go, enjoy music and, you know, just... Um, it used to be a thing because you you had to dress up. It wasn't just arriving there, you know, in a in a khaki shorts or arriving there in a in a, in a t shirt or something. You had to dress up. You had to look the part when you go into the kismet, the Athlone cinemas, um, you know, um, the bicycle out in Salt River, the gym palace, the gym. Yes, the yeah, palace. I, I used to work in the canteen there to go and pay for my studies, and these were all the things. But if we have to hold this up to two children who are 18 and 20 years old today or 24 years old, even millennials and Gen Zs and, and those people, it, it is a very far removed thing for them. So how do we actually make that real for them? Yeah. So look, I have a deep commitment to the formation of Athlone because, you know, Athlone, like many other places, you could go to Halt Road in, in Elsis River, there were desires for freedom. And we have always now marked those sites as sites of underdevelopment. But we have forgotten that that great thinking happened there. I studied there. Richard Reeve wrote a novel in the middle of this burning, in the middle of these tur turbulent streets. So there was great thinking. You know, you think about uh, James Matthews. You, they were poets. There was a desire to learn. There was a language. There was an articulation of a future of freedom. None of those have been tapped to make us who we are in a post-apartheid moment. And I'm saying that's a forgetfulness that we will pay dearly for. Mm. Because this book is a reminder, not only of the violence and the eventfulness of those moments, but of those mundane everyday struggles against an edifice and a violence that was a psychic violence, a, a, a breach on the psychic structure. Yeah, so we're, you, still, we're still sitting with District 6. No, absolutely. So District yes. 6 is one, but when people move to Athlone, and you know the Kismet, so I did this film called The Double Futures of Athlone. And I'm, it's about J.J. King and, you know, it's got Hilton Schilder and Sylvia Mdunyelwa. And, and there's this discussion about, you know, Winston Mankunku and Tony Schilder and others on the stage of the Kismet or the Quela Kids, you know. Um, so, so this is not just an account of a nostalgic account. This is, this is about where freedom was dreamed, dreamt about, where freedom was crafted in the everyday. And to take from that a lesson about how we make freedom now. So that's my ambition, mm. is not to wallow in some misery or to answer this question about was it good or was it bad or yes or no. It is actually to ask us to think about what are the techniques by which we constitute a desire for freedom. Chatting this morning to Professor Pramesh Lalu, the author of Undoing Apartheid and uh, Documenting History Past and Present and uh, exactly where we are heading to. I, I, want, I want to put uh, a spanner in the wheel here mm. because Athlone, is that where a colored identity was born? No, so I want to say that, you know, my mm. interest at the moment is how we can build a world where we break up the geographies of apartheid. Mm. Because in some sense, we, are, we have trapped young people in the geographies of apartheid. The work I do in the Center for Humanities Research at the University of the Western Cape, where I'm based and which I, I directed for many years, was to work across rural, peri-urban and urban. So we worked in Barrydale. 
where between 94 and 2010, not a single youth had entered university. We now have 70 youth through a partnership with Net for Pret and Handspring Puppet Company. These giant puppets that we built have brought young people to think carefully about the object, to attend to the object, to expand their attention and their horizon in an environment replete with fetal alcohol syndrome. So, so here you got a, an example of how, what you can do, not what you must do, but what you can do to alter the conditions of people's, to alter the human condition. So, so in a sense, um, you know, Athlone for me was a crossover space. People from Cougs, Langa, from Belgravia, Bokmakiri, all of all around that whole space, that region, despite the group areas, effort, the efforts to, to manufacture a group areas mentality, arrived at these spaces to think about their worlds together. So I'm trying to say that today Athlone is a space that is emptied of that desire and potential. I mean, we, we think that apartheid was about a matter of, you know, the CBD. And people in Seapoint sometimes think that they and they were responsible for bringing apartheid to its knees. No, it was actually in those spaces where people dared to dream and desire freedom. And I'm saying there's something in that space that we've got to attend to if we don't attend to it. And it's not just Athlone. It could be any number of places. If we don't attend to it, we fail our, our, a generation behind uh, that, that comes along uh, after us and we say to them that your, fa your parents had no desire, no dreams, no, no, no inkling about what mm. it meant mm. to think through the world and the difficulties and the hardships that they were living through. And, and this is the key thing is that, you know, we, we, were, not, we were not people lost. Um, even where I grew up in Belleville South, you know, um, we used to we, we had to walk across the bridge and go into going into the dorp where, um, as you come into Belleville South, you got you used to have the railway houses on the one side, uh, and of course you entered this white town, this white area. You understand to go and do your shopping and to go to a market and to eventually then sort of retreat back into mm -hmm. where you were supposed to be and where you were supposed to to be living, uh, and and I think that we had desires. We were. We were really, honestly wanting freedom. We were aspiring to a lot of things. You know, uh, I, I went to UWC and we, we wanted a better life. We were continuously told and conscientized about gutter education, gutter education. But it produced Jake Scarable. It produced a number of other people. It produced, produced uh, Professor Fani Son, for instance. You Not know. only that, that's a, and you're, I've just supervised six PhDs and the early career program in the Center for Humanities Research. I'm convinced they're about the finest dissertations on the sensory, on the history of the senses. I mean, you think about Fernanda Dalmeda, Aidan Erasmus, you know, Tozama April, whose PhD is being presented at the old at the Star Theatre, the old few got this week coming from the seventh to the eleventh, called Makeke. About Charlotte Makeke was the first uh, science graduate who went to the US and studied at Wilberforce University with the Du Bois. Uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and that dissertation is now being presented in theatrical form through the protégés of Handspring Puppet Company, the people who were trained, who had built the war horses and have been the, the object on the, in theater that's been seen by over 10 million people around the world. This city has gone to sleep. It doesn't realize that young people are actually inventing and creating a world for themselves in the same way that we created a world for ourselves under apartheid. 
So let me tell you, this stereotype that nothing happens on the Cape Flat except, you know, underdevelopment mm. and violence mm. is absolute rubbish because people read books there. But yet, this city has been completely neglectful of the potentialities that exist within those spaces. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm asking. This book is an invitation to dream about where those futures will be made. Mm. Great topic. Only question is, how is it possible that after nearly 30 years of freedom fought for, we still chum out unemployable youngsters? No, it's not. You know, I'm saying that, you know, the struggle here is to invest in education. And I'm convinced that in the center, the work that we've done, there are 300 graduates. I mean, it's slow, it's small. But, you know, we're now working in the, in the Dwas River and so on and so forth.